Well, good morning. The passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at today is going to, in many ways, challenge us to be thinking about the way in which things are unfolding in front of our nation, things are unfolding in front of this world, and we want to be able to turn our attention to what it is that God is doing. So if you would make your way now to Second Chronicles chapter 22, we're going to be looking at beginning verse 10 on in through chapter 23. As we continue off and on in this King's Chronicle series, looking at spiritual revival. Now, the thing that captures our attention when you're talking about revival, among other things, is that the precursor so often is that you will find society is in decline. There's a downward spiral. It seems as though in the eyes of believers, things are getting worse, not better. But what's interesting is that in the early stages of authentic, genuine revival, there is a core group of people who feel so tremendously burdened about what's happening. They're involved in what we would call intercession, seeking God in prayer, God is prepared to do intervention. And the two find as though they begin to overlap. And when that occurs, the trigger has been pulled and something significant is occurring that God is securing. So we want to see how all this relates to us as individuals and how this relates as well to our nation today. As we pick it up now in Second Chronicles, beginning in verse twenty, or rather chapter twenty-two, verse ten, and I want you to notice the core group. It's a husband and wife team. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshaphat the daughter of King Jehoram, took Joash, son of Ahazai, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered, and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Now because Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, and wife of the priest Jehoiada, was Ahaziah's sister, she hid the child from Athaliah so she could not kill him. He remained hidden with them at the temple of God for six years, while Athaliah ruled the land. This is an astounding story that we're going to be looking at now. And if you track with me as we begin to process the verses that are here, I think you're going to see something significant in the way in which God is at work in this world today. But to do it, we're going to start by looking to God now in prayer. Our Father, as we're coming before you, we're coming before you as people, sinners by nature, in need of salvation by grace, where a work of the Holy Spirit leads us to you. 
We're praying that in all the services this morning, in the warmth of this summer day, and in the comings and goings of a 4th of July weekend, we can center our thoughts upon the one who's given us true freedom, true independence. Independence from the penalty of sin when we put faith and trust in Jesus as salvation, Savior and Lord. Now, Father, as we ponder what's here in these verses, we, we're going to have to build a bridge, a bridge between the yesterday of these verses and the today of 2013, and see the direct bearing it has upon our lives and the way in which we live. So guide us, teach us, instruct us. No matter what the background, no matter what the experiences that we bring into this worship service today, we're praying, Father, that through the working of the Holy Spirit now, again as we pray, week by week, that you warm these hearts, that you challenge these wills, that you engage these minds, Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying this again now in Jesus' name. Amen. We've said that during the days of the Civil War, when it seemed like America was so tremendously fragmented, We noted that in the south, in the southern troops, there were over 100,000 in the midst of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual revival coming to saving faith in Jesus. Interestingly, simultaneously, in the Union, troops of the north, between 100,000 to 200,000 soldiers likewise were coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And while all appearances were such that the nation was coming apart politically, what we saw in the movement of the Holy Spirit among these troops was that slowly but surely, the nation would start coming together spiritually, which is a fresh reminder that the spiritual precedes the political. And the case is as well in these verses here today. Because you and I are about to be introduced into a tremendously difficult situation in the history of Judah. A direct assault upon God's plan of bringing Jesus Christ into this world. What we want to be able to do is to understand how in the midst of this spiritual decline, God, true to his promise, secures a way out And through a remarkable example of uncommon faith, you and I are going to see how God used certain individuals to achieve his purpose and for his glory. Now look very carefully with me at the scene that appears on the screen. This is a scene again from a civil war. What's interesting about this picture is that it draws your attention to a place on your map known as Alatoona Pass. And there's a story behind this picture. It's told by a believer by the name of General Howard. This took place in 1864 when General 
Sherman began his march to the sea about 20 miles north of Marietta in Atlanta. Confederate troops cut Sherman's communication lines along the railroad at this particular place. There was heavy fighting. The Confederates had surrounded the works of the Union forces. The battle seemed lost in the eyes of the Union forces, but at that particular moment, just as it seemed lost, an officer looked up, caught sight of a white signal flag. Far away across the valley, 20 miles away, atop of what's known as Kennesaw Mountain, the signal was answered, and soon another signal and another message, a signal and another message, waved from mountain to mountain to mountain. Three messages. Message one, hold out. Message two, hold fast. Message three, hold on. I'm coming. General Sherman. Out of this scene, in the midst of movements of the Holy Spirit in both the north and the south, there was a fort where they were challenged in these signals to hold out, hold fast, hold on, at Alatoona Pass. And music was put to this scene called Hold the Fort which was sung subsequent to the Civil War, and one of the hymns by which God was using to unify people in churches, some of whom were allies to the south and others to the north, reminding them of the God who ultimately would come and intervene. What you and I see here is a young couple who are being challenged, in essence, to hold the fort, as they await for God to intervene in the midst of in trouble, troubling, difficult times. And I'm going to draw out for you, again, three more distinctives of what genuine revival entails as we look into this story carefully. The first is found in verse 10 through 12 of chapter 22, and we're going to phrase it like this, number one, that in times of genuine revival... Evil is resisted. Now you pick it up in verse 10, and you and I are informed that Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead. She proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. Notice her evil intention. And her objective is to eliminate the entire royal family of the house of Judah In other words, the line of David. Now, if she eliminates the line of David, there will be no Christmas. There will be no Good Friday. There will be no Easter Sunday. Because the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that his descendants would sit on the throne forever, would be found to be untrue. And that a woman by the name of Athaliah has greater say over the events of history than does God. So now here is this evil woman who has brought Baal worship into the southern tribes. 
For six years she has been reigning as leader of that land, a usurper of authority. Her parents, well, their names were Ahab and Jezebel, leaders of the north. Her husband, who's died, his name is Jehoram. He was the son of Jehoshaphat. There was an arranged marriage between the tribes of the north and those of the south. Her husband dies, she's in charge, and she's now setting out to destroy anybody who would stand as a threat to her reign. Now look at what's happening here. There's the evil intent in verse 10. And as you and I look what's happening here, our mind goes back to the time when Pharaoh was attempting to uh, rid the Hebrews of the baby boy. Or in the New Testament, when Herod was attempting to put to death the baby boys at the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. In other words, you are staring at a satanic plan where the objective was to eliminate Messiah from coming into this world. Now, the royal line is the pipeline to Jesus. Athaliah is attempting to stop this from happening, guided by the workings of a satanic plan. So now she proceeds to destroy the whole royal family, the house of Judah, verse 10. But I want you to see something remarkable here. And women, if you are looking for a role model, I want you to seriously consider the woman who's described next. In verse 11... Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered, and put him in his nurse in a bedroom. Remind you of the story of Miriam and Moses at the Nile? In other words, God has strategically positioned this woman at this time, at this point in history, when all the other royal children are being put to death, and one remains, and the entire Jesus plan is hanging on a thread. God strategically brings her into this plot line, rescues a baby by the name of Joash, puts him now in a nursery, and you and I pick up on the scene, because Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram and wife of the priest Jehoiada, was Ahaziah's sister, she hid the child from Athaliah, so she could not kill him. This is the only remaining descendant. And he's only yea big. God delights in doing big things in small ways. He remained hidden with them at the temple of God for six years. While Athaliah ruled the land. She thought she was in charge. And she thought that her plan was foolproof. Secure. 
and nothing could stop her plan now. But lo and behold, God is in the quiet recesses of the temple precincts, preserving his promise, and it will be through this little boy who grows up to be king, Joash, who through his line we move forward until we get to Jesus. Now, if you're looking for a role model, a feminine role model, ladies, I want you to seriously consider this uncommon faith that we're seeing here in Jehoshaphat. There are modern-day Jehoshaphats as well. Look at the picture of the woman now that appears on the screen. Her name is Baroness Caroline Cox, and if you're a subscriber to World Magazine, she may look familiar. Because back in 2004, World Magazine dubbed her Daniel of the Year. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a grandmother. She's in her 70s. She's a titled woman. Deputy Speaker of the British House of Lords, a Baroness. President of the Royal College of Nursing. Honorary degrees from three different universities and three different continents. Who's got guts, Mindy Belt says, enough to supply a platoon of Marines. Her first helicopter flight. Attempting to protect innocent Christians in the face of jihadist movements was shot down over Azerbaijan. It was a sacred moment, she said but she has made 18 more trips into the war zone since, looking for ways by which added protection could be given to believers in the midst and in the threat of ongoing persecution. Mindy Belts goes on to inform us that danger is a steady diet for this woman who's the president of Christian Solidarity Worldwide. In 2004, she traveled also to war-torn Nigeria three times, to Indonesia, Burma, and North Korea, each time trying to find ways to protect the innocents at the hands of those that were going to, through jihadist actions, put people to death. I've been. I've seen. I know how it is out there, she said. And when she saw Soviet-led oppression giving way to ethnic cleansing, she was ready back then with relief aid and public advocacy. And now when she goes into Africa and she sees tribal elements whereby Al-Qaeda is making inroads, she's on the scene risking her life in her 70s declaring the good news of Jesus Christ but gathering together resources to protect Christian tribes in particular, from such hostility. Mindy Belts tells us she's made at least 28 tribes to southern Sudan, to regions where the Islamic government forbids UN aid to predominantly Christian tribes. And she says, I never show up empty-handed. I come with resources as well as scripture." There's a prison sentence in Khartoum and death threats in several parts of the world that hang over her head. 
asked if her own family worries about her. She says, sometimes I call them when I get back to England. And when her physician husband died in 1997, she found more opportunity to speak abroad. For you see, she said, quote, when God gives you a vacuum, you fill it, unquote. Now, Jehoshaphat sees a vacuum. All the other means, it seems, by which to protect the Davidic line have been lost. We're down to this baby. All of salvation's hanging on a thread. So you can imagine now, holding this child in arms, she comes into the house. And she looks at her husband, and she says, guess who's coming for dinner? And I can imagine the whispered tones in the household as they realize that Athaliah, if she gets word of the fact that there is one remaining descendant of the line of David, not only will she be after this child, but they will lose their lives. Now, if you're married, if you're married, here is a tremendous model of a couple who demonstrate what we'll call this morning uncommon faith. Because what we find here now is Jehoshaphat and her husband Jehoiada, with sleeves rolled up, put faith into action. Do you do that? And so in verse 12, you and I are informed that this faithful remnant hides this child, the temple of God, for six years. You can imagine the mentoring, the training, the discipling, the schooling that's going on as this couple is pouring their lives into this offspring. All the time looking over their shoulder, I wonder if Athaliah has found us out yet. And as the little boy is growing, he's probably hanging out with other children in the temple precincts with other children of the tribe of Levi as their priestly parents are involved in the work of ministry. He kind of blends in, you see. He fits in. And evidently, Athaliah is unaware of what God's doing. And so often, when it seems though the culture is in decline, what's interesting is that God is at work in such hidden ways, using a remnant of people, no matter how small, who see the decline of the culture. And here's a core group, a husband and wife team, mind you, who demonstrates such uncommon faith that with sleeves rolled up, they're absolutely committed, you see, to the sovereign salvation plan that God has determined has to go into effect via the line of David onto Jesus. You see, in times of genuine revival, evil is resisted. And sometimes all it takes is a core group of a few 
to make it happen. Are you part of that group? Now there's a second distinctive I want to draw out for us, and it's found in verse 1 through 15 of the 23rd chapter. The number two, in times of genuine revival, truth is revealed. Evil is resisted. Truth is revealed. In the seventh year, chapter 23, verse 1, Jehoiada, that's Jehoshaphat's husband, part of the husband-wife team, Uncommon faith. He shows his strength. He makes this covenant with the commanders of the units of a hundred. They're described there. They come to Jerusalem. The whole assembly made a covenant with the king, seven-year-old, at the temple of God. Now, Athaliah has brought Baal worship into the land. She has attempted to replace Yahweh God with Baal. She's attempted to exterminate the entire plan of God of bringing Messiah into this world. But there's this little hidden child who's growing day by day in the temple precincts. And sometimes the sovereign plan of God grows slowly, hiddenly, yet surely. Jehoiada is a strong leader. His wife has taken initiative in bringing that child home. He's going to take initiative in organizing the nation. Jehoiada now speaks up in verse 3. They're gathered together. And notice what he says. The king's son shall reign. You can almost feel as though that they're holding their breath. The king's son? There's one still alive? We're down to one. The king's son shall reign as the Lord promised concerning the descendants of David. And immediately you are taken back to 2 Samuel 7, where in verse 16, you and I are informed that God said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And again, that's why Jesus had to be raised from the dead. Because this kingdom is forever. And furthermore, the chronicler informs us in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, we're in verse 7, Nevertheless, because of the covenant the Lord had made with who? David. The Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. He promised. He promised. Integrity's on the line here. Who's in charge? Athaliah or God? He promised to maintain... A lamp underlined that for him and his descendants forever in chapter 21, verse 7. An anecdote. A mother and her small daughter walking past the house in Springfield, Illinois, where Abraham Lincoln lived. 
lights burning. It's burning on the inside. Makes the home seem warm and inviting. And they pause for a few minutes as the mother tells the little girl what a great president Lincoln was. And how the whole nation mourned when he died. And the youngsters listening, rapt attention. And then noticing the glow coming from the windows, she looks up and says, Look, Mom, look. When President Lincoln went away, he left the light on. God left the light on. You're down to Joash. The entire promise plan is now hanging on a thread. But this incredible couple demonstrate uncommon faith. The woman takes this child, a descendant from David, into her home, into her life. Her husband now rallies the nation together. And what you and I are about to see is to another example of uncommon faith. Jehoiada said to them, The king's son shall reign as the Lord promised concerning the descendants of David. He's got good theology, but he doesn't stop there. Now with sleeves rolled up, he's got an action plan. In verse 4, this is what you ought to do. A third of your priests and Levites who are on, going on duty on the Sabbath are to keep watch at the doors. A third of you at the royal palace. A third at the foundation gate. All the other men are to be in the courtyard of the temple of the Lord. He's reintroduced the Lord in a land being overtaken by Baal. No one's to enter the temple of the Lord except the priests and Levites on duty. They may enter because they're consecrated by it. All other men are to guard what the Lord has assigned to them. In other words, now he's got the details. He's got the troops. He's organizing the people. The Levites are to station themselves around the king. Protection. Each man with his weapons in his hand. Anyone who enters the temple must be put to death. Stay close to the king wherever he goes. Now, the Levites and all the men of Judah did just as Jehoiada the priest ordered. I typically find, don't you, that two of the major distinctives of leadership are both initiative and influence. Initiative, willing to do something others are unwilling or have not thought of doing. Influence, the ability to get people to do what otherwise they wouldn't do for the glory of God. This is Jehoiada, in a nutshell. This couple is mocked by uncommon faith as the entire salvation plan hangs on the thread. The Levites and all the men of Judah in verse 8 did just as Jehoiada the priest ordered. Each one, each one took his men. Those who are going on duty on the Sabbath, those who are going off duty, everybody's organized. You see God's sovereignty and you see human responsibility. 
For Jehoiada the priest had not released any of the divisions. And then he gave the commanders of units of a hundred, the spears and the large and small shields that had belonged to what? In whom? King David. Now, this brilliant leader, part of this couple of uncommon faith, has got a visible example in the hands of the, of the soldiers. And they're looking now at these swords and they're saying, this is a reminder of me that I am called upon to protect the plan that God has established. The salvation plan delivered to David onwards towards you and I know as Jesus Christ. Are you giving tangible, visual evidence at home, workplace, and beyond of uncommon faith devoted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Now these men are looking at their swords, the swords of David. And they're pondering this small little boy. Everything seems so vulnerable. But simultaneously, everything seems so secure. God sometimes has allowed for us to be put in periods of extreme situations. Extremes. Where we have no other alternative but to look up. We're down to one descendant, and he's small, you know. But they've got the sword of David now in their hands, reminders of the promise that God had given. It's a forever kingdom. So in verse 10, he stationed all the men, each with his weapon in his hand, around the king, near the altar, the temple, from the south of the north side of the temple. And look what happens in verse in verse 11, Jehoiada and his sons brought out the king's son. And what do they do? They put the crown on him. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is Nazir. We get the name Nazarene or Nazareth. Sound familiar? from this word. It carries with it the idea of to be consecrated, set apart, this crown. This is not so much a coronation. This is a consecration. And notice what happens next. In verse 11, they presented him with a copy of the covenant. What is that? What this incredible man, Jehoiada, is doing is he is putting God's word in the hands of the seven-year-old king. Because the priests were responsible, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, to take a copy of the law and present it to the king who was to read it all the days of his life so that he would learn to revere the Lord his God. In other words, you and I are looking at now truth being revealed. 
And where there is a movement afoot, though it starts small, of authentic, genuine revival, evil is resisted in verse 10 through 12, the 22nd chapter. Truth is revealed as seen in this 23rd chapter, verse 1 onwards. This man has organized the people. Take a look at this next scene that appears on the screen. This is a picture of John Wesley. John Wesley was part of the great awakenings that occurred in Great Britain and the United States. He's facing incredible antagonism and tension and opposition. He's being attacked by a mob in a setting in England known as Winsbury. And yet the spiritual movement continued to gain traction as more and more and more people came to saving faith via Whitfield and Wesley. Now ponder the opposition because Athaliah has been producing incredible opposition. And if you look at the culture, maybe nationally or what's happening globally, and you say there's such intense opposition, but remember, God may delight in small beginnings. He uses Joash's. He allows things to be taken to the limit, if necessary, to reveal his glory and his sovereignty. You ever feel like you've been taken to the limit? In verse 12, when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and cheering the king, she went out at the temple of the Lord. Irony. She had reached a place where she had been placing statues of Baal around that temple. She looked and there was the king. She's overlooked somebody. But God hasn't. Standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing, blowing trumpets and singers with musical instruments were leading the praises. And Athaliah tore her robes and shouted, Treason! Treason! And you write in the word irony. I mean, really, who has committed treason here anyways? She has. Against the sovereign God. Jehoiada's ready. And Jehoiada the priest sent out the commanders of units of a hundred who were in charge of the troops and said to them, Bring her out between the ranks. Put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest had said, Do not put her to death at the temple of the Lord. So they seized her as she reached the entrance of the horse gate on the palace grounds, not in the temple. And there, capital punishment. The one who had put all of the royal offspring to death. Justice. She is put to death. And what we find here is that Jehoiada has demonstrated a tremendous capacity to organize the plan of God. Taking the truth found in the promise of God. 
and applying it to the situation, the crisis of the moment. Now, when you and I are tremendously burdened for the descent of our culture, spiritual decline, bear in mind that in times of genuine revival, evil is resisted. Furthermore, we need courageous churches where truth is revealed. Then you're ready for what comes next. Because in verse 16 down through verse 21, you find the third significant distinctive of revival. That in times of genuine revival, society is reformed. Now bear in mind, revival precedes reform. Too often, believers attempt to hang their hopes on a Supreme Court in their 5-4 decisions. And then experience angst when things don't go their way, rather than do the hard work of being involved in evangelism and discipleship and proclaiming truth and being involved in sought and light sought, where evil is resisted. Light, where truth is revealed. And notice how the spiritual then shapes the cultural, and the cultural shapes the political. And how revival is the precursor to reform. And if you just simply bank on reform without revival, we've basically built a house without a foundation. And so Jehoiada understands all this. And in verse 16, he makes a covenant. The same word which was used to describe Moses and his people at the, at the time of Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given. That he and the people and the king would be the Lord's people, not Baal's. So what do they do? All the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. Not some of them. In other words, where there's a movement of God, there is a combination of removal and replacement. Removal of those things opposed to God's will and a replacement with truth and laws which are in concordance with God's will. Pick it up in verse 18. Jehoiada placed the oversight of the temple of the Lord in the hands of the priests who were Levites to whom David had assignments in the temple to present the burnt offerings of the Lord as written in the law of Moses with rejoicing and singing as David had ordered. And he also stationed doorkeepers at the gates of the Lord's temple so that no one who was in any way unclean might enter. What's happening? That as society is being reformed, God's people are rededicated in verse 16. False spirituality is being eliminated through sound teaching of truth, verse 17. True worship is being reinitiated in verse 18. And look what happens. In verse 21, all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet. 
because Athaliah had been slain with the sword. Look at this next picture that appears on the screen. In the center is William Wilberforce. Maybe you saw the movie Amazing Grace. He was used by God to be involved in the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. But what strikes me is that his timeline overlaps with that of Whitfield and Wesley. Whitfield and Wesley set in motion revival. Wilberforce and company follow up with reform. And so what begins inwardly within the heart leads outwardly into the nation. Keep your W's together. Wesley and Whitfield lead to Wilberforce. Revival leads to reform. The spiritual shapes the cultural. The cultural shapes the political. And now you've got how life is meant to be worked out. Wilberforce. In the summer of 1833, Parliament passed the second reading of the Emancipation Act, ensuring the end of slavery in the British Empire. Three days later, Wilberforce died. He was mentored by John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. Irony. But you'll notice people surrounding him. Wilberforce was one of five members of what was known as the Clapham sect. They lived together in an extended setting, all of whom held seats in the House of Commons, all of whom were directly affected by the Whitfield-Wesley revivals and moved from revival to reform politically in the land. None of them ever lost a parliamentary election. And you can see there's Granville Sharp, Henry Thornton, John Venn, the woman to the right with the bad hair, Hannah Moore. I'd recommend Levon's on eighth to her if I could. Tie it together. Evil is restrained. Truth is revealed. Society is reformed. I mean, this is so logical, people. And it's biblical. And it all fits together when God's people grasp the totality of the plan of God. This is where rubber meets the road. And his lives are changed. So is a nation. And out of intercession comes intervention. And God is willing to start with a small core group if necessary. Even a husband and wife team to make it happen. Question. Are you part of what's happening? 
Let's stand together. My Father, when we look at this, we can see life today globally. We're watching what's happening in Cairo and Egypt right now. We see Isaiah 19 unfolding. We see the tremendous spiritual relativism taking hold. And yet we see ongoing threats to freedom. And through it all, when it seems as though life is hanging on a thread, we realize that there is a Jehoshaphat, that there's a Jehoiada, that there are couples, that there are individuals, that there are groups willing to bend together with ultimate loyalty to Christ and Christ alone, who say to themselves and to one another, this is a forever kingdom. Forever. And if our God can raise Jesus from the dead, then we're able to say we have a God who's in control. We can trust Him. We can obey Him. We can be change agents for His glory and grace. And that's my prayer, Father, that in all the services, as a whole, this congregation is positioned to be an agent of change, making a difference for God's glory. We commit ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.